I'm interested in the etymology of mundane objects. Because they are so common, my hope is that when someone encounters my work, they might think about those everyday objects differently. You're listening to Lives at Speak, a podcast highlighting the remarkable work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school at Sidwell Friends, a pre-kindergarten through 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, I chat with Sonia Clark, class of 1985. Sonia is a renowned artist best known for her artful deconstruction and exploration of mundane objects and their social connotation. She was a recipient of the Anonymous Was a Woman Award in 2016, the co-winner of the Art Prize, juried Grand Prize in 2014, and the Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship in 2010 and 2011. Additionally, Sonia was a Distinguished Research Fellow in the School of Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University, where she served as Chair for the Craft Material Studies Department from 2006 until 2017. Currently, Sonia is a professor of art at Amherst College, her alma mater. In this episode, we discuss the power of Sonia's art, how curators put objects in conversation with one another, and one of Clark's favorite media, textiles. So welcome, friends. Uh, I'm Brian Garman, head of school at Sidwell Friends School, and it is a pleasure to be here with the visionary textile artist, Sonia Clark. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Always happy to do be in conversation with my alma mater. Uh, well, that's very <laughs> kind of you. It's so nice to meet again. Uh, you and I met several years ago when you were on the faculty at Virginia Commonwealth, and now you're up at Amherst, which is your alma mater, right? That's correct. Speaking of alma maters, right? So I was at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and uh, chaired the craft and material studies department there for 12 years and then came to Amherst um, just as a visiting professor while uh, my husband and I were on sabbatical and we actually met at Amherst and, oh, wow. uh, and it stuck. So we're, yeah. <laughs> we're here now. We're here now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've had a, a homecoming of sorts with this incredible show at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. It's a mid-career retrospective with a hundred objects, right? A hundred objects. I, you know, it's, it's, I've, of course, I've made much more art than that, but who would think that a hundred of them would be worthy of a retrospective? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. It's, it's nice to have them all in one place. Um, so many works in conversation with one another. And what's that been like to have a, a show this large and to have it in your hometown? Oh, you know, um, one of the things that has been such a pleasure is that uh, Katie Watt, who is a head chief curator at the National Museum of Women in the Arts, um, she really understands objects and understands what um, what my work is trying to do. So, um, so from from what I can see from afar, because I haven't seen the show in person yet. Um, Every image and from the catalog I've seen, she's just putting things in conversation that perhaps have not been in dialogue with one another. So a piece from 1994 might be in conversation with a piece from 2004, a piece from 2014. So to see that arc across time and have someone um, handle the work with such such diligence and care and um, and in, intelligent um What's the word I'm looking for? Sort of like, uh, well, I, I would just say actually intelligent care, you know, like mm -hmm. really thinking mm -hmm. about what the work is meaning. And then, of course, you know, hometown of Washington, D.C. 
I mean, it is, um, it's been a long time since I've lived in Washington, D.C., but of course, these are my formative years. Um, my parents are both ancestors now, so I, I regret that neither of them had the opportunity to mm-hmm. uh, to be with us to see this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they were both immigrated, both immigrated to the U.S. from the Caribbean. And um, I grew up in a house on just off of 16th Street that we just sold um, shortly after my mother passed away. So, you know, I have deep roots in Washington, D.C. And of course, Sidwell was very formative to my time. I went, I was not quite a lifer, but at Sidwell from third grade through 12th grade. So almost a lifer. I think we can count you in the honorary categories. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> you mentioned the uh, relationship with the curator. Uh, have you experienced uh, uh, something before uh, uh, a, a kind of... Um, learning before where the curator has put, your, as you say, your um, objects into uh, conversation with one another that has uh, led you to see the objects in new ways? Yeah, that's what, that's actually, as an artist, what I hope for. Mm. Um, so, you know, when I, when I make an artwork, um, it's, it's my hope that, uh, you know, I, I have a certain amount of intent around making that artwork. Perhaps it's asking a question or it's, it's, an attempt at answering a question, and then it goes out into the world, and it has the opportunity to then engage with others. And so what good curators do is that they listen to the dialogue of the object, and they are in dialogue with the object, and then they start listening to the different voices of what it, what each object is saying and putting them in, in conversation with each other. So I would say that a good curator is like a good editor, like understands what the... Um, what the artist or the writer is trying to do and, and, and sort of puts things in juxtaposition in a way that, that can help a good editor <laughs> and a good curator that can help you see the work in new ways. And actually it, it can be really generative. Um, mm-hmm. I had a, a show many, many years ago. I think it was in two. Yes. I remember it was in 2006 in New York and it was a group show and uh, a curator asked for a piece that I made in 1995 and then a piece that I made in 2005. And in my eye, I couldn't understand why these works would go together. And then when they were in the same space, it made me um, think about new works. I mean, it literally was generative, like this plus this Mm -hmm. could equal a whole new body of work. So I'm really grateful for curators. And I'm also really grateful for the audience because when people ask questions or are challenged by something um, or don't get something, like all of those things um, are also generative. Yeah, that's interesting. So let's go back to the Sidwell days for a moment, if we can. I mean, Uh let's see what I can remember because I'm old (laughs) enough. (laughs) For a retrospective, yeah. (laughs) You and I are the same age, so uh, we'll we'll go through this together. Um, (laughs) All right, so you came came in third grade, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, what do you remember about Sidwell Friends? How did it shape uh, the person that you are now? How did it shape your work? I I think that there's something about Quaker values that, um, you know, that just were instilled. You know, this idea that everyone has something to offer. Um, everyone has a, a potential part of community. And if we're doing this well, we're recognizing each other's contributions. 
then it actually forms a kind of solidarity. Um, and I think that is something that I hope for um, as I'm making work. Um, it does mean that there is there's work to be done. You know, like peace work is not just about um, everybody getting along, but actually fighting for justice. And so um, I would say that that those those values were deeply instilled in me from an early age. And then um, the other thing that I would say is that um, there was, I, I think the reason that my parents uh, sent me to Sidwell, um, my sister didn't go to Sidwell Friends, but the, I think the reason that my parents sent me to Sidwell is that it had the reputation at the time. Um, and I think hopefully it still has this reputation of, um, of knowing how to work with students who are um, intellectually capable, but are also creative in lots of ways. And so mm -hmm. from a very young age, um, my Montessori school teacher mm. had told my mother that I was an artist, which I think people say that a lot about kids, but um, Mrs. Dennis was an artist herself. So she saw something in me. And, um, and many years later, I cycled back to that. And I think um, Sipwell nurtured some of that as well. So I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Um, well, that's well, I wouldn't have landed at Amherst College, which is was really formative to um, how I think as an artist, though I I didn't take a single studio class while I was here at Amherst. Did you take any at Sidwell Friends? Yes, yes. So I took some classes with um, Percy Martin. Uh, um, and, and um, oh, this is going to be the hard part. We, we were required to take art in middle school. Um, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of um, my middle school art teacher. Um, but I do remember, uh, and this is going to make it worse because I remember my um, lower school art teacher's name. Um, so Mrs. Gay, who was our lower school art teacher, I remember her having, she was, had us like look and critique Van Gogh's as little mm. kids. I remember that well, you know, like we were looking at art and critically thinking about art um, at a really young age. Mm. Mm. And talk about Percy a, a little bit. He was a, a, a very well-known artist in his own right and, and just mm -hmm. had a wonderful show over at the museum at uh, American University. Oh, did he recently? Yes, yeah. You know, he's a wonderful printmaker, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just, not being not being in the area anymore, yeah. I just didn't realize that he had had a show. Well, congrats to him, of course. Um, you know, I, I would say that one of the things that, that Percy did um, in in our art classes, they sort of just allowed us space, mm -hmm. you know, it was, um, it was a space to, to be and think creatively. But I also remember, like, there were things that would kind of drive him crazy, like he would say, um, you know, your homework is to draw a street scene or something like that. And if you literally drew the, the road, you know, like the blacktop of a road, and you didn't fill it in, you know, like completely black, then he was like, that's not what you saw. You know, we were just sort of like sketched some dark lines and said, you know, you fill in the rest. He was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so, you know, even within that space of um, room for us to just be, there was a kind of um, a kind of diligence and criticality, which I think is, you know, you, as an artist, you find your balance between those two things, like the space and um, and the discipline. Mm -hmm. And so. You said you went off to Amherst and you did not take a studio class there. You, mm -hmm. you developed this interest. You came back to this interest 
a bit later. And uh, could you describe for us how that happened? Yeah. So um, I think I think this is probably not too atypical of um, of a lot of first generation American experiences. So my parents were both in the medical field. My father. Um, uh, the reason we grew up in Washington, D.C. is that he, well, let me just back up even further. So my father and mother met in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. um, my father was from Trinidad. My mother is from Jamaica. Um, uh, the reason he, they were both British colonies when they met. Right? Um, and so um, the reason that they met is that he was in the first class of people who were gathered up from the British Isles to be in at the University of the West Indies. Main campus was in Jamaica. So thankfully that happened. He landed in Jamaica. He met my mother. They started a long distance um, affair because he transferred them from the University of West, the West Indies to Howard University mm. and worked his way through um, undergraduate school, graduate school, um, uh, medical school, mm -hmm. and then was writing letters back and forth to my mother. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Thin onion skin letters, you know, like, you know, there was no just picking up the phone. That wasn't really uh, an option. I, I think when, when my mother then followed him here and joined him, bought a house and settled, you know, you want your children to do well. And um, there's so many stereotypes about starving artists that even though my parents understood that I, um, that I had these creative inclinations, they also knew I was good at math. Mm -hmm. So um, they <laughs> encouraged that, um, you know, and, uh, and even when I went to Amherst College, that was encouraged. And, and nowadays, I don't think I would have been allowed to be a psychology major. I think they would have made sure that I was a STEM major mm -hmm. uh, of some sort. Um, but I ended up majoring in psychology because I was following my father's footsteps because he was a psychiatrist. So he's an MD. But I, I was really interested in the way that the mind works. Um, and my parents' graduation present from Amherst to me was to... Um, I should take, I say I took one studio art class, but it wasn't at Amherst. It was um, at UMass, at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, because, mm -hmm. you know, there's an exchange in the five colleges. Okay. So I took one class there. And that class was about African textiles. And I was actually kind of hooked. Um, it was my senior year. And, um, and then my parents, as a graduation present from Amherst, um, paid for me to go to West Africa and study, study traditional art forms in West Africa for, uh, I think it was like four or five weeks. And when I came back from that trip, I had a job lined up to work admissions at a boarding school um, just around the corner actually from Amherst. And, um, at, but when I came back from West Africa, the Cote d'Ivoire, I knew that I wanted to go to art school, like enough of doing everything for everybody else. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I wanted to go to art school. So, um, so I saved up my money um, from working at the boarding school, uh, Williston, Northampton. Okay, and, yeah, um, sure. And I went to uh, the Art School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And my father, <laughs> being a very practical man, um, very generous, but very practical, he said, okay, I just paid for Amherst College. So what is this? You're getting a second degree now in art, <laughs> you know? And you're leaving a job to do this. And so I said, well, dad, let's make an agreement. I'll do this. I'll pay for this. And, um, and he said, okay. 
if it's just a passing fancy, that's fine. And you need to get it out of your system. He said, even if it gets into your system, I just need you to promise me that you're going to get a master's degree, that you're not just going to go collecting bachelor's degrees for the rest of your life. And the first art class that I took at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago felt like I got oxygen in my lungs. Like it just felt like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been waiting for. There were no grades, by the way. Uh So all of that being a a good student and doing well on your SATs, all of that kind of stuff fell by the wayside. And I really um, realized that art was one of the hardest and most challenging things for me, but um, something that I needed to do um, to understand the world around me. Mm You, I've only met you once and I've seen you um, in some interviews. You have uh, such an energy and positivity in your presence. How do you channel that into your work? Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, we kind of have some options, right? <laughs> How we're going to be in the world. And so um, I... It's, it's not that I don't have um, rage uh, because living in the United States of America um, as a melanated woman, um, you know, and a cis woman, but still, you know, like it is, it is not an easy place to be right. in, this, in this nation. And, um, and I, maybe it's like that psychology degree. I have a kind right. of hope that, um, that, we can be better than the worst of us. In fact, we are better than the worst of us. And also that um, human beings are complicated um, and we can find our best selves, um, even in the complication that we are. And so there's something that I'm trying to do in the work, which is to... um, call out subjugation and injustices while also celebrating humanity. Mm -hmm. So to do both of those things. Um, And, and that, that is actually Brian, I would say it's a mixture between um, being intentionally rageful and intentionally joyful. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. But but, are there psychologists that you studied uh, as an undergraduate that, that resonate with you in terms of your thinking in, in those terms? Oh, probably, but if you ask me their names now, um, <laughs> then I, I, I wouldn't be able to call them. But I would say that, you know, my father's example, um, and my father, uh, I, I always joke about this. My, my mother um, really saw things in black and white. She would meet you and in 10 seconds decide whether she liked you or she didn't. Huh, interesting. Right? Yeah. And people were always intimidated by my father because he was a psychiatrist. You can imagine like you're bringing home someone that you're dating and they're just like, oh my gosh, your father's a psychiatrist. I was like, you should not worry about my father. It's my mother who's going to decide in 10 seconds whether she likes you or not. Um, so my mother really saw the world world really clear cut and it, it was like from her gut. Mm-hmm. She was like, I have a gut feeling about things. My father walked with this really big heart. Like he understood that people were complicated. And, um, and it's a good thing that he was a psychiatrist because what that means is that he absorbed those complications to help us be our better selves, mm, right? Wow. So, yeah. I, you know, I'm their daughter, right? Mm-hmm. So I have that, like, my mother laughed. I have photographs of my mother that I swear you can hear her laugh through the photograph. Oh, like, wow. she was just like, yeah. 
full of energy in that way. And my father was very, very even keeled. And I like to say that I have a balance between the two of them. Yeah. Like when, when, when equilibrium is called for, that I can conjure the energy of my father. And when high energy is called for, that I can conjure the energy of my mother. And so I like to think in this way that even though they're their ancestors, that they live on through me. I saw an interview with you and what you said that you wanted to make sure that you were living artfully. Yeah. yeah what does, yeah. what could help, help us understand what that means? I was really struck by that. I, I mean that not just for myself, but for other people as well. Um, and, and what, what I mean by, I don't think you have to be an artist to live artfully. Um, I, I think it has to do with, um, well, I'll give you an example. We're all, we're all, um, well, at least I have not gone but one other city um, since the pandemic. And so I live in the small town of Amherst, Massachusetts, and my husband and I are here we are, right? And um, almost daily, I take walks through the neighborhood. And it doesn't matter what the weather is, I'll still take a walk. And, um, and so my challenge every day is to see this neighborhood that I walk in. And it's, you know, it's, it's semi-rural, so there's a lot of nature around here. But to see it and feel it anew, right? And I would say that's a way of living artfully. Um, it's to see, it's to sort of yes and what is around you. So, um, yeah, there are birds chirping now. But are they the same birds as yesterday? And what, what, are, what, are they, what conversations are they having? each other um and and to let you know to let the imagination go in the direction of the attentiveness that we pay to our surroundings and our surroundings not only being nature but also human beings which is to mean which can also mean to to listen deeply and to listen behind the words that people are sharing with you um uh to listen to the looks that people give you mm. or um uh, to feel the people that are around you in ways that um, that can help um, for me help me understand myself better. You know, like there's this way that um, James Baldwin has this great quote where he says that art is a kind of a confession. Um, and I'm going to massacre the quote, but um, he basically says that it's a way of understanding who you are and how you're connected to others, so that you can then understand more connections mm. right um and I, I think that's kind of what i mean when i say about living the world living in the world artfully mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is to figure out how we're connected mm -hmm. so you've described your parents as ancestors now um and i'm sorry mm -hmm. that, that it sounds like you've lost your mother recently i'm sorry for that you're yeah well two years two, two years, years. Yeah. yeah yeah and so this notion of um, ancestorship is really animated in your work, uh, right? You are you are deeply engaged with powerful symbols from the past. Your work is so uh, profoundly historically aware. Thank you. How, how how what is the process you go through to choose these these symbols, and and how have you? Uh, chosen to work with them over time. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of two here in particular that are, you know, hair, thinking of hair, and I'm thinking about flags. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, in one sense, in one sense, you could sum up my whole practice in hair and flags. You'd be leaving a couple things out, but <laughs> but we would get a lot. That, Not. I'm also yeah. interested in the sugar as well, by the way. But it's, yeah. but but um, but you know, these are these are are powerful symbols. They are. Yeah, they are. So, um, uh, you, you know that I was trained as a textile artist, and so. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to study with really amazing um, textile artists and uh, like uh, Nick Cave, uh, not Nick Cave, of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Right. Nick Cave, <laughs> the artist, right? And um, and when I was at the Art Institute of Chicago, and, you know, my, my draw to textiles has, has to do with the idea that I believe that textiles have the ability to speak. Mm. I mean, and I mean that literally. Um, there are um, there are ways in which people um, learn how to weave textile structures while they're singing into the cloth. And so mm. there's this, you know, like you understand the pattern and how you're supposed to weave the cloth through a work song, right? So in that sense, is the song becomes um, a score. So a, a, again, a kind of text, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But even, even, you know, even as I say text, you hear its relationship to the word textile, mm -hmm. right? I mean, in this language that we're speaking to each other, um, text and textile come from the Greek textere, which means to weave, right? So literally, like, ancient Greeks were like, this is like text and cloth are the same thing, right? So um, it makes me think of this quotation when it comes to flags about the power of a textile, that a flag can be um, a piece of cloth that ma makes the guts of men grow bold. Mm. That's something that poet um, John Agard said. Um, and it's true, it's just a piece of cloth. But then as soon as it becomes a symbol and imbued with um, whatever it's imbued with, um, whether that be uh, nationalism or uh, hate mm -hmm. or patriotism or uh, civil liberties, civil rights, um, the cloth has the ability to absorb all of that potency, mm -hmm. that language. Um, and then the other thing is that we're walking around swaddled in cloth all day, every day. You know, like I, uh, when I teach textiles, I often ask students to think of a time when they are not engaging cloth. And it's maybe like a moment in the shower and then you grab your towel you know, like, or you step on the back mat, you know, like it's it, like we're, we're constantly touching cloth, which means that we have a visceral understanding, a haptic conversation, like a nonverbal um, relationship with the medium. So it strikes deep. Um, and then with hair, um, I have so much to say about hair. <laughs> I mean, it's like so much, right? You know, that's why they're, you know, a hundred works. Right. <laughs> and more than that, right? But well, you've made um, hair wreaths, right? Um I mean, and sometimes yeah. and sometimes there's a, an intersection between hair and, and the flag. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I work with hair and sometimes it's I'm working with actual human hair, mm -hmm. which is to say that I'm working with our DNA and 
uh, you mentioned the ancestors earlier, it is to say that I'm also working with the power of our ancestors, right? You know, each strand of hair, uh, you know, hair is the, the fiber that we grow, right? And so each strand of hair is also um, an ancestral strand. Mm -hmm. It's, it's um, you know, we think of ourselves as being individuals, but not a one of us is here without all the people who came before us, right? And all those people are codified in like a strand of hair that might get, you know, just washed down the sink, right? Like everybody is in that DNA, in that hair that holds all that DNA, right? And so it's powerful, powerful stuff, right? And so, you know, Brian, you and I um, grow different textures of hair, mm -hmm. right? Right. But if you pluck one of your hairs and one of my hairs and um, and we looked at our DNA, then, you know, we, as, as human beings, mm -hmm. we're essentially the same, mm -hmm. right? Right, exactly. <laughs> like we're essentially the same. And phenotypically, we would be divided um, uh, according to what the anthropologists did so many years ago um, uh, in, into different races. But genetically, we're the same, right? right? Yep. So hair also does this because, because of the, the constructions around race, right? That the kind of hair that I grow and the kind of hair that you grow separate us, right? But the hair itself, like the DNA in it, actually bring us together. So that's power. I mean, like I could do that all day, you know, like something that can hold the complexity of us being one humanity uh. and also the complexity of us being divided um, along racial categorizations. Yeah. And that, that isn't the thing, actually. Racial categorizations, it, it's, that's, that's not the problem. The problem is then those racial categorizations go along the hierarchy and the, that subjugation or um, supremacist notions yeah. um, get put on to the racial categorizations. And there we have a problem. So all of that, I, I would say that um, I'm interested and the etymology of mundane objects. The more everyday that something is, like the hair we grow, that is, you know, once it when it's once it comes off our bodies, and most people are just like, that is trash, right? <laughs> like throw that away. Um, or the cloth that we surround ourselves with. Because they are so common, my hope is that when someone encounters my work, they might think about those everyday objects differently. Mm. And because they're so ubiquitous, then if I shift something in a $5 bill, then hopefully you don't see a $5 bill again anymore, though who uses cash nowadays, but you know what I mean? Or, you know, now you think, wait, hair can be a medium. And it has been for, you know, as long as human beings have been around, hair has been a medium for um, functional and aesthetic objects. Um, usually the hair of other mammals but also human hair yeah um i could go on but i'm sure you have other no questions. but no well it's it's so interesting i mean the, this notion uh of the etymology of mundane objects is fascinating yeah and the etymology of words themselves you know how we name things and how we call things you know i started with this connection between text and textiles but they're also you, you know i really i really think when i use text itself in my work, then I'm also thinking about it like being a cloth of a sort of, of a sort. And I, I actually think about 
how language can be as powerful as a monument. Mm -hmm. Like how how I'll give you I'll give you some examples of that. Um, So there's there are a couple of pieces in the exhibit which play off of the word chow, um, like um, like chow bella, you know, like hello or goodbye, right? Yeah. And right, and so. um, and that's that's a pretty common phrase. Like it's you know a pretty common greeting. It's used in a joke with my Italian friends that it's probably a bigger export out of um, out of what was once ancient Rome and now Italy, um, bigger than olive oil. You know, like everybody knows what ciao means. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds cosmopolitan when you say ciao, right? Right. Um, and the word. And the etymology of the word, and, and and really not like its deep roots, it literally means slave. Mm. So then you hold in your mind, like, wait, what? So when I'm saying like, hello and goodbye to someone, then I'm saying, I am your slave. This is what it means. Mm. And so the Italian word is schiavo, right? And the Venetian accent around schiavo turns it to ciao. Huh. Interesting. And of course, Venice was a major um, port of slavery. Um, it wasn't colorized <laughs> or, or melanated in ancient Rome, but it, it certainly was, you know, ancient Rome was built on, was an empire built on, um, on subjugation and, and enslavement. And so is this empire, right? Right. So, you know, I think about, you know, I think about language, like literally etymology, but then I think, well, how can I use that etymology and and talk about how objects also have these legs and what are we taking for granted and what are we not taking for granted? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think there's, um, they're really obvious symbols that are in front of us, like the Confederate flag, um, which are uh, symbols of, white supremacy, white nationalism, um, and, uh, you know, the, the Confederates were insurrectionists from the start. Yes. <laughs> that was the point. Right. Right? <laughs> they were trying to pull away from the Union, right? right? And so when people take that and they conflate it with patriotism, mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, what is going on here, you know? Um, and so, and yet we know what's going on when we, when we consider that this nation modeled itself after the Roman Empire, which meant that necessarily people had to be enslaved and treated as less than human in order for this nation, this empire to build its wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Like it modeled itself after that. So to hold the Roman Empire as the, um, as this like, ah, look at, you know, like this is the, this, the really important to, um, to Western civilization, we have to unpack that as well, and then say, "Oh, we swallowed that poison too." Yeah, right. Well, um, we swallowed that poison too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting because you're you're talking about um, et- etymology of words, etymology of art, the the mundane. There, there, there's is there a connection between um, deconstruction. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, in, in terms of, uh, deconstruction as a, uh, literary theory and, and, and your artwork, uh, I mean, because you, you're deconstructing this, you, you're deconstructing sacred symbols, symbols, at least are sacred to some, 
right? And this this notion uh, that these flags uh, make the guts of men grow bold. I mean, there there that there's something about that that resonates, and and that you're deconstructing uh, the the image to reveal its truth in some way. And then and then it's like so. For example, um, in the in the five dollar bill, um, you're reconstructing it at the same time. So I mean, can you? Maybe maybe that's not what you're doing, but it seems to me that's animate in your work in some some manner. Can you can you talk about those projects? Yeah, sure. So um, so specifically, um, I think what you're referring to with the deconstruction of the um, uh, specifically the deconstruction of the Confederate um, of our, or of a Confederate battle flag. Right. Because that's the there were many Confederate flags. Yes. Um, and um, in terms of hiding, you know, there's um, people, people often refer to the Confederate flag that I use, which is the one that shorthand people refer to as a Confederate flag. And that's the one with the X through it, 13 stars, uh, the right. blue X. Stars and bars that some people stars. would call yeah. it. Right. Well, actually, it's not the stars and bars. Oh, it's not. Oh, well, tell me, how, what's, yeah. what's the difference people there? People often say that it's the stars and bars. And the stars and bars is another Confederate flag. And often what people will do is that um, people will say, okay, we're going to take down the one with the X, right? right. <laughs> and they actually replace it with the stars and bars, which is a simple flag that has a red stripe, a white stripe, and a red stripe. Huh. And then the left corner has a blue square that um, that then has 13 stars in the round. I see. And that is actually the stars and bars. But we, the, like, there's so many Confederate flags, but the one that we use... And the one that we commonly think of as being the Confederate flag is the one that got popularized by the KKK, mm -hmm. right? And um, so, you know, like this notion of white terrorism, like it just went right with white terrorism, right? And um, so in, in the piece Unraveling, what I do is I invite people to stand next to me, um, pair with me. So it's just two of us at a time. And just with our hands, we um, pick apart a Confederate battle flag, and it's slow work. One of the things that happens is that people realize that they they know cloth, but they don't actually understand how cloth is structured, right? <laughs> um, and so to undo um, the damage of uh, white supremacy, um, which rears its ugly head um, daily in this nation, mm -hmm. Um, and in lots of other nations as well, um, is, you know, to understand its structure and to, to understand it at a granular level and to understand it at a, a grand level as well and all the spaces in between. So sometimes when people are standing with me and working on that project, I have people who get really frustrated and they say, oh my gosh, this is taking forever. Can we just take down this flag and burn it or bury it? And they say, well, first of all, Green Newsom took it down. So, you know. Um, my friend John Sims burns them and buries them. So there are lots of artists who are doing this work, this symbolic work about what it means to um, dismantle um, notions of white supremacy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that really does tie to this idea of etymology. Like, what are the roots of things? Mm -hmm. but, uh, sometimes when people are standing next to me as we are um, unraveling, um, they are triggered by all the hatred and violence that the Confederate battle flag um, 
signals. Mm-hmm. And um, I was standing next to one young woman whose hands were shaking, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, and understandably so, because um, this is a flag that preceded violence in her experience. Um, just always did no holes barred about that. And, and I, to her, I just said, it's just a piece of cloth to, to, you know, like to dismantle its symbolism to just say, it's just a piece. You're going to help me just unravel just a piece of cloth. It's just a piece of cloth. It's nothing but a piece of cloth. And to other people, there'd be people who say, you know, I've come here because people in my family are, uh, I've had people tell me, you know, people in my family belong to the KKK or the Proud Boys or whatever. And, um, and they say, I've come here to do this work because of people in my family. And I'll say, you know, you're, this is not the work you actually have to go <laughs> This is symbolic right. work. You know, so, so with each person, that psychology major is actually yeah. really helpful, right? Because um, I'm having to improvise in the moment. I never know what someone is going to say to me. And I never, you know, I have to figure out what is the right response in the moment. But I learned so much yeah. from being with people. And then the additive property, like when you were talking about um, the $5 bill and putting a, an afro on, um, on Abraham Lincoln, you know, which is uh, admittedly funny, but um, humor that I like to unpack mm-hmm. by saying, you know, why is it funny for Abraham Lincoln to have an afro on him? Part it's funny because I'm collapsing 1864 with 1964, right? Maybe it's also funny because um, Abraham Lincoln doesn't grow that kind of, didn't grow that kind of hair, right? But then you think, well, um, lots of people, um, lots of African-Americans don't grow the kind of hair that they don. You know, in fact, in this nation, we have to pass laws to say that it's okay to grow the hair that we grow and wear it naturally. Like the Crown Act is literally saying, the way your hair grows from your head, it's okay for you to let that happen as opposed to straightening it. Like that's what the Crown Act is saying. Like imagine if people who grow straight hair were told that they had to perm their hair to have it be afros, right? right? So right in there, you think, well, it's funny because there's already this hierarchy of white is right and anything else is not. So it's funny when Abraham Lincoln is wearing an afro and it's not funny, not at all funny when um, Beyonce and I love I love Beyonce. So this is no disrespect has her hair long and blonde. Nobody thinks, oh, that's hilarious what she's doing. Right. Right. And so the other thing that I like to say about the piece is that um, I've made 44 of those um, $5 bills with the, with the um, Afro on them, stitched on them. Um, and uh, not a one of them sold for $5, not anywhere close. <laughs> so the value. Yes. <laughs> the value is the Afro. So the point is that like this nation was built on that wealth and that's not to deny yeah. that this nation was also stolen from our, stolen from our indigenous brothers right. and sisters. Um, but it's to say like this wealth right here didn't happen without African-American people yes. and others. Of yeah. course, I should also say um, 
Asian American people because you know the the hate that has been perpetrated against our Asian American brothers and sisters as well, you know, raising its head. Just it, this nation has so much work to do, but I believe we can do it. Yeah, you know. Well, that's your holding in both hands, you know, the subjugation and the celebration of the humanity at the same time, right? That That is what your art does. And I, I think it's why it's so resonant now um, and so important now, um, right? Yeah. There's been a lot of, a, a lot of the uh, historical oppression and hate has been operationalized, re-operationalized, strengthened perhaps in the last few years. And, um, and uh, that deconstruction needs to continue. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, when I think about what the hate that um, is perpetrated in this nation, that what um, the virulence of it is the fear of losing the privileges that come with the formation of whiteness, yeah. as opposed to realizing that, like, literally nobody's free until everybody's free. Right. Like, there, there's a way in which people are trapped by their own privilege. <laughs> and it's hard to see that because you just experience the privilege. And I walk with lots of privileges. You know, I walk with some class privilege, educational privilege. And so I, I'm always trying to also unpack the privileges that I walk with and to see, like, how are my privileges um, actually undermining other people's freedoms? Mm-hmm. What am I taking for granted mm-hmm. in my everyday um, as well. So not, not just the sort of finger pointing, but also saying, okay, all right. So, um, if we're all in this together, then, then, um, then how can I do the work of, um, of turning the mirror on myself so that I can make sure that, um, the unfreedoms that are deeply embedded in this nation, that I'm, I'm doing my part to, um, to turn those unfreedoms into freedoms. There's this great, great quote by Paul Robeson that says, um, the artist must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery. I've made my choice because I had no alternative. Yeah. And um, that I just read that right off my wall because it's what I look at every day in my that's studio. Well, that's an and, you know, I'm like, okay, so how are you doing this today? You know? Yeah. There's a wonderful, uh, wonderful mural of Paul Robeson uh, down on B Street. Um, really amazing. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, uh, next time you're... Yeah, I haven't spent much time in D.C. Yeah, well, we got to go down. We'll go down and see the... uh, We'll see the mural together. There's some wonderful murals down uh, in that section of town. It's really, it's really great. Really, really very large mural um, that celebrates the breadth of his legacy. So I want to say that, you know, Paul Robeson, um, uh, my, one of my dearest friends, um, Still, um, someone that I met at at Sidwell, um, Leah Gillian, and her um, her mother wrote a book. Dorothy Gillian, Dorothy Butler Gillian, wrote a book on Paul Robeson. Um, and of course, Miss um, Gillian was uh, for many years a columnist for the Washington Post, the first black woman mm. who was a columnist for the Washington Post, and then Leah's father. Sam Gilliam is this really famous, famous artist who, um, when I was uh, coming out of graduate school, I, I interviewed him. And do, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm not sure if said, well, do you all still have that painting in the, what would that building be called? We do, in the Art Center. 
that beautiful yeah, piece. And it's a, it's a huge piece. And actually we have uh, an exhibit of Gilliam's paintings uh, still on display and some of his, some of his textile work, right? Um, also. Right. So this is the thing, you know, one of the things that I loved about Mr. Gilliam's work is that he is a painter who um, has done many, many, many things, but among them, he got really well known um, for his draped paintings. Right, exactly. Which, which he was that's what that's the technical like, work. I, 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 draped painting is the the appropriate term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, what he was doing as a painter is he was saying, okay, so if we take the cloth and free it from its stretcher bars, then it's cloth mm-hmm. and it has drape and it has this kind of freedom, right? Like just, just thinking about that. Um, so when I was working as a textile, when I was getting my degree as a textile artist, I went to talk to him, to interview him, because um, he was like, you know, the artist right. that I knew. <laughs> well, the, the, the Washington Post that I knew. Right, he was, he was yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. The, the, really at the heart of that, the, the Washington Color yeah. School. And, you know, the Gilliams have been in my life for a long time. So I was like, this, you know, just talking to like my dear friend's dad, he'll give me some time, right? And he said to me, when I asked him about the Drake paintings and their relationship to textiles, he said, others look to a monument and we look to a piece of cloth. And he said that to me in 1994, 1995, and it stayed with me for so long. And now I actually think about cloth as monuments, you know, like to, to take that, that relationship, that binary relationship and to collapse it and say like, cloth is a monument, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And if cloth is a monument, then what are we doing with our monuments and how are we letting cloth be a monument? So in one sense, a Confederate battle flag is a kind of monument. Like you mm-hmm. can take them all down and still anyone could draw one, right? Um, so I've worked at like, how do I replace textile monuments with other textile monuments, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So very grateful to that family. So I'm hoping the Amherst community, uh, not the Amherst, sorry, the Sidwell, I'm hoping the Sidwell community who um, walks under Mr. Gilliam's paintings on a regular basis um, will think about all that he has brought to um, to the art world and also to me personally, yeah. you know, um, very grateful. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, you, you've talked about, we've talked about the flag, we've talked about hair. There is, there's a politics to hair, um, yeah. right? You've mentioned the kind of hierarchy and, uh, I'm, I was struck by uh, your representations of Madam C.J. Walker. And how did you think about her and all of this? Yeah, so actually, this is another kind of D.C. connection in a way. So um, uh, a little circuitous, but um, I, um, I had done this project, this collaborative project called the Beaded Prayers Project, which is actually currently up at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. This is the the collaborative project that has been around now since 1998 and it's still going strong in which I invite people to write down um, wishes, hopes, dreams, or prayers Mm -hmm. and sew them shut in packets um, and, and um, attach at least one bead to the outside. Again, my interest in etymology bead and prayer share the same etymology. Mm -hmm. Now that seems odd because they don't even sound alike, but it's from rosary beads, Mm -hmm. right? People were literally using beads as mnemonic devices to understand where they were with their prayer cycles. Now I'm not a particularly religious person, but I I thought this is fascinating, right? So I, um, I happened to be at the American library association, um, with 
someone who uh, asked if they could display part of that project as part of um, their contribution to the American Library Association conference. And um, so I was there for that purpose. We were in Atlanta. And um, one of the presentations was uh, Vernon Jordan had just written a book that was published and Alilia Bundles had just written a book that was published. And these two were on a panel together, these two authors. And the book that Alilia Bundles wrote was at the time called On Her Own Ground. And it was a book about Madam C.J. Walker. Mm -hmm. And Madam C.J. Walker, for your audience, if you don't know, is um, one of the first self-made women millionaires in this nation. She also was a black woman. Mm -hmm. So like, what? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, so you'll hear first self-made black woman millionaire, but she was one of the first self-made women millionaires. And she was born in 1867, a full 100 years before I was born. And she, um, she started working in the cotton fields of the South. And by the time she died in 1919, she um, had become um, this entrepreneur around the business of hair care. Mm -hmm. And um, and Alilia Bundles is her great granddaughter. Oh, wow. So okay. I picked, I, you know, met Alilia, bought her book, thought, oh yeah, Madam C.J. Walker, right, of course, knew who she was, but hadn't read a whole book about her. Um, Alilia signed that book and we've become friends ever since. And so I made works around Madam C.J. Walker because I was struck by, um, how she was able to negotiate a capitalist system in which women didn't even have the right to vote, um, certainly then, and then black women didn't have the right to, black people in general didn't have the right to vote until, um, until the 60s. So, um, you know, here, here is a woman who managed to build her own wealth, and because she was wealthy, it gave her, um, at, in a capitalist country, it gave her access to a white man's world, right? right? It gave her a kind of power that she could work on anti-lynching campaigns. Also meant people weren't looking, they were looking at churches. They were, um, uh, so uh, racist folks were looking at preachers, black preachers and churches and saying, okay, that's where the, um, the opposition to white nationalism was happening, it was also happening at black women's salons, mm -hmm. right? So lots of activism happening there, but they weren't looking for it. Right. So um, she was an activist of sorts, um, of, of course, but you know, she also gets criticized because she um, popularized the use of hair straightening tools. And so some people love her and some people hate her. And uh, the, those complications I find quite interesting. I'm, I'm on the side of not hating her because I, I sort of am like, you know, all the good that she did. Right. <laughs> it's okay if everyone wasn't donning an Afro then. I mean, if we are still working on Crown Act rights now in 2021, then I, I'm, I'm not really mad at Madam C.J. Walker for thinking, okay, we might have to do our hair a little bit more like these people who are trying to subjugate us for, for us to be taken seriously. And I know that's complicated, but if we're still working on this now, then... Um, Someone who was born just a few years after the end of the Emancipation Proclamation, I'm like, I, I can give you this one. It's complicated, right. but I can give it to you. Well, this, yeah, so I've made a number of pieces around her. Yeah, this speaks to your uh, penchant to find uh, complexity, uh, mm -hmm. right? We are mm -hmm. all complicated 
human beings and um, and your art brings a humanity to us uh, in a very uh, I think very important way, a very subtle way and um, and I appreciate that. I, I had the, you know so many pieces that I uh, admire and I just wanted to name I thought maybe I'd just go through and name a few. This is kind of for me. Oh sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This part is just for Brian. And- <laughs> <laughs> but pieces that I I was really drawn to. I mean, so I mean, I, all of it. I mean, the fl- the flag pieces I, I found very powerful, right? And especially mm-hmm. those that that brought the the hair and the flags uh, together. Um, I, you know, I found that to be very very powerful. I, I um, well, how about Crossroads? Oh, Crossroads is you actually meant is that a comb piece <laughs> no it's 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 literally the crossroads right it has so it has a pyramid in the middle and then and then the roads going over the pyramid oh 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 wow that piece is in the show okay right remember i haven't seen the show yet yeah. so crossroads is um it is both a headdress and it has these arrows. It's red, black, and right, white. Exactly. Right, exactly. That's yes. right. <laughs> a hundred pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so Crossroads is a piece that, um, for many years, I was thinking about how, um, in Yoruba culture, among the Yoruba people in um, in West Africa. Right. So, you know, now there there's a whole Yoruba diaspora. Yoruba people are everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I grew up across the street in Washington, D.C., the ambassador from Benin and his family, who were Yoruba, um, Ambassador Ajebade and his family of 14, they were Yoruba. Um, so Benin, which was then called Dahomey, Nigeria, huge diaspora of Yoruba people. Um, Many Yoruba people were brought to the um, to the Western Hemisphere um, during um, what is called the transatlantic slave trade route. So that right. global movement of people, um, they have this belief that your head is the seat of your soul, mm-hmm. not your heart, mm-hmm. not your elbow, not your knee, you know, but your head, right? And so for many years, I was making pieces that were sort of honoring our souls by making headdresses that honored our heads. And this is this really borrowing from that Yoruba tradition. So we started with that. And that piece actually has on it, if you look at it, Brian, it has a number of these packets on it too, like these beaded prayers packets. So, um, so it is each one of those packets has an arrow on it like this multi-directional, like which way are you going? Yeah. What does it mean to be at the crossroads? The crossroads being the site of like change and power, yeah. right? And that's where there was a, uh, there was a God uh, like figure, Eshu, right? Who would meet people, yes. there, right? Yeah. You know stuff. Okay. Yeah. So Eshu is known, <laughs> Eshu is known for being the, um, the God or the Orisha of, of the crossroads, right? So, um, and and he's a complicated figure. He's a yeah. trickster. Yeah. And he is also sometimes a she, right? Uh-huh. You know, like it's hard to place issue, right? Um, and issue can mess. It's a is a messenger as well, and so issue can mess up your 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 communication with the other Arisha. It's like truly a trickster yeah. in all the ways that um, tricksters have power and help us understand the complications of 
of the universe, really. Yeah. Right. Um, so this piece is is made in honor of Ish. Oh wow! Right? Yeah, I wonder <laughs> that you know, and there's also, of course, this is part of um, blues lore too, right? With the uh, yes, Johnson legend. Yes, yeah. yes, that's the same. That's same. drawing from exactly yeah. that same um, well. Yeah, 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 yeah. How about blued? Oh, so blued. So these are really old pieces. These are from early on. So blued is, um, I think it's dated maybe 1997 or 1998. And blued is also um, this relationship of bringing two souls together. Uh, yeah. And that piece, I started making it around the same time that my husband and I, my now husband of 25 years and I um, decided to get married. Uh, so um uh, there are there are these beautiful headrests yeah. that you find throughout the continent of Africa that um, sometimes they um, they they look like small stools, but they're actually like pillows. They're like sculptures to hold your head while you're sleeping. Right? Huh. <laughs> and um, and sometimes the married ones will have a chain between them, like this idea of linking between them. And so I made this for my husband and I, and it's, um, we joke about it. So it's the one piece in the collection that is his, right? <laughs> it's his, I gave it to him. So we, he had to sign the loan paper uh, to release yeah. it to the show. Um, and, you know, we joke about how we're each other's ball and chain, yuckety yuck, but also how we're unified. Um, we, you know, we, we've been at this for a while and we, um, I'm, deeply grateful that I, um, that we committed to each other for a lifetime. Mm. Um, it was one of the things I did well in my twenties. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot, this is a much longer list on the other side. <laughs> and, um, and then he named the place, the piece blue, not only to, um, to, to refer to the blues tradition, which talks a lot about love sure. and a lot about, you know, the challenges of love, but also to play off of the word glue. Yes, I see so it now. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah. yeah. That's very yeah. sweet. That's, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> I, and then just, to, I wanted to talk about one sugar art piece, which is the price. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you know that piece relates to so as I said at the at the beginning, my my parents are both from the Caribbean, and so um, and from what used to be Britain, you know, uh, during colonization, you know, and in, in um, certainly in their lifetimes, and I'm trying to think of the actual dates of when um, when both of those nations I should know this um, became independent of. Of Britain, one could argue whether they really still are, but um, but it was a sugar sugarcane that was the cash crop that brought my African ancestors to the Caribbean, and um, and like a lot of people of African descent, you know, I have a a multiracial background. If you came to a family reunion in Jamaica, every everybody's there. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's there. yeah, but um, but I identify as a black person and uh, would be identified as a black person and um, by most people and uh, and so I wanted to think about um, this idea. Uh, there are a couple of pieces in the show that bring together this idea of what it really means to really challenge this notion of what it means to think about a human being a human individual as a commodity, mm -hmm. 
what does that actually mean? And so I worked with my studio assistants to do some research. Um, and we, we found this paper that had been written that is like devastating work, right? That you could um, plug in different attributes. So I plugged in different attributes about myself, my age, my skills, um, all of that at the time that the price was made to understand what my value would have been mm. in today's dollars. Mm. And it's like a nice car, not the world's most expensive car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it's a nice car. And so um, the piece is made out of paper that is um, shaped around the size of bills like dollar bills or you know, currency. And um, that paper is made from what is called bagasse. And bagasse is what is left over when you squeeze out all the sugar cane. Mm. So you've taken the stuff that you want for your sweet tooth, right? You know, thinking about how um, European gentry would um, show off their rotten teeth as this sign of, um, luxury. You're like, I'm so wealthy. I can have rotten teeth. <laughs> Such an odd thing anyway, but to take these, these, um, bills, this paper, um, that is made from the leftover. So like once you've squeezed out all of the, the sugar juice, right. And turn that into rum or molasses or sugar, table sugar. Um, what is left is the grass right? Mm -hmm. The grass itself, right? The cane itself. And normally that would just get burned, but it can be turned into paper pulp and paper. It also can be turned into, there's some enterprising Brazilians who have turned it into uh, thread, a kind of uh, fiber mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. I do for other pieces. But for the price, I turned this bagasse paper into currency. And it's just this brown currency. It's about the same color as my skin. Um, and it's wrapped with a band that reads um, 36,683, which is what I would have been worth if someone were to buy me, if slavery still existed in 2016. Now I have to tell you, I'm worth a hell of a lot more yeah. than that, <laughs> right? <laughs> it just makes you think like you could buy a person, buy a person, not employ a person, own a person for $36,000. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to make that very real. And so that's actually the price of the piece. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, just some paper mm -hmm. made from some leftover sugar cane. <laughs> this is how much is, this piece is worth. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. No, no, thank you for sharing. And, and I should just mention that all of these uh, photographs of all of these pieces are available on your website, right? SoniaClark.com. Um, yeah, most of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, think, the, I think everything we talked yeah, about. Yeah, these are. Yeah. These are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, because yeah. I was, I was, uh, I've been looking at it. And, you know, the price, 
also reminded me, and you mentioned him earlier, Baldwin, right? Baldwin had this phrase, the price mm -hmm. of the ticket, right? And yeah. and um, Jasmine Wahi, who's one of our former students and alum, yes. who did a great piece on you actually in the Times, right? Really nice piece. I was so honored to have it. As Sidwell alum, right? But she's brilliant. Yeah, she's Sidwell. wonderful. Hello, Jasmine, <laughs> Jasmine, how <Yeah>. are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, we have to get one of these too. Fearless, yes, you absolutely must. A fearless activist. Yes. And just, I'm so proud to know her. Yes, so proud terrific. to know her. Yeah, terrific. So let me then ask, uh, as we draw to a close here, what does solidarity mean to you? So I think about solidarity as. Um, as a, a sort of the lifeblood that holds communities together. And so there might be a moment when, like if you think about your own body as an organism, your foot falls asleep. So something is not right there. You have to get blood to that part of your foot, right? <laughs> um, and so I think about solidarity as being something that is in flux, but towards the goal of making sure that all of us are cared for because if we're not all cared for, then really none of us are cared for. So it's really like, I think about solidarity as this um, ecosystem, you know? Like how, how is it possible for, if I see it means that all sorts of systems are working in my body. And if I can't see something is not working, right? So when, if we're blinded by not seeing, if we're blinded, then it means something is not working, right? And so solidarity requires all the parts to be in constant um, interaction with one another and to call out like the foot is asleep right now or the eye cannot see right now, we have to fix that. Um, so of course I'm answering you with a metaphor, but that's the best I can do as an artist. Well, <laughs> it's a beautiful way to end. And thank you so much for, um, raising the questions of justice and for pointing us in the direction of solidarity and for the tremendous contribution that you've made to the art world. Um, we're very grateful that you were able to spend time with us today, Sonia. Sonia Clark, thank you for being with us. Oh, Brian, my pleasure, my deep, deep pleasure. And, um, and I hope we get to talk again soon. Yeah, it was fun. Bye.